Hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you're listening to the Long Game Podcast. Today, we're talking to Bill King. Bill is a friend of mine. We met on Twitter and have gotten along swimmingly ever since. He and I share many interests in such esoteric matters as decision theory and game theory and experimentation, SEO and content marketing, meditation, sailing, and music. We actually both played in bands and seriously considered music as a career. We cover some of these things today, as well as chatting through Bill's career arc, with his most recent position being the director of marketing at Phrase. In my opinion, this was an incredibly fun conversation. And if you listen carefully, you'll find a million gold nuggets that you can take away and use to change how you view work and decision making, especially if you're in SEO, content marketing, or any acquisition-related work. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Bill King. So I actually, I want to ask more about the Boston thing, even though it's not really related to content marketing, which I'm sure we'll just naturally stumble upon that. For sure. Um, For sure. In addition to all the other stuff we've we've talked about in the past, your background in poker and like your lessons yeah, you've yeah. taken from that. But um, in terms of Boston, we, we talked to David Cadavy on the podcast and he moved to Medellin um, based on like- Beautiful. A lot of factors, super beautiful there, but like he found his balance of creativity was the best there because they work on event time and not calendar time. But in his book, he also mentioned Chicago. He he lived in Chicago and Chicago is conducive for him because it had sort of natural seasons. So in the summertime, it's very like boisterous and everybody's partying and like outdoors. And it's, it's kind of his relaxation season. And he looked at winter because uh, it's so miserable as yeah, essentially yeah. the time that he would plug in, get shit done, go heads down and do all of his writing design. Do you yeah. feel that even though Boston has that miserable winter, do you think there's some upside to that too? Or is it just completely, you know, seasonal affective disorder and like February comes, you don't even want to work? I, I don't know. For me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a routine person. Like, um, I think a lot about like setting good habits that I can follow day in and day out. And um, for me, like the seasonality is nice, I think for a change of pace, I guess that's like the the line of thinking everybody uses. But I think for me, like I need to stay focused on what it is that I want to do. And so like when it gets freezing out, it just puts more barriers in the way of the things I want to do, like go out for a jog. And you know what I mean? It's like it, it mm-hmm. puts more friction into the places where I don't want friction. Now that could just be me being an ultimate excuse maker, which is hundred percent possible. That's in the, the range of things that, that could be the answer for that, for that, for that question. But um, to me, I, I always think like, how do I make it easier for me to hit the goals that I want? And when, and you know, part of those goals are there's work goals, there's like personal health and wellness goals and stuff like that. And so um, while I think that the seasons are valuable because it's good to change up your surroundings that I, do believe in the idea that um, there's this like mental, I think we've talked about this before, like off, off podcast time, but we've talked about like the idea of habit loops and getting into these really important patterns. For me, I, I actually like the idea of getting into patterns for things that I, that I want to drive towards. And then the season somewhat impact that, especially mm-hmm. on like the health and like just exercise to, uh, side of things. Cause it's, you know, when it's three, three degrees outside, it's pretty tough to motivate yourself to, to go outside and take a run. You know what I mean? 
So yeah, health and exercise for me has been the biggest one since moving to Austin, where all through the winter, it's actually it's 60 degrees today and sunny. It's better weather than the summer to actually exercise. So I've maintained much more health and wellness in that regard. Um, it's sort of like automating things, right? Like, you know, at a given time on a given day, you're going to go to the gym or you're going to go for a run. And like, it just sort of becomes like a background thing as opposed to like you making that conscious choice every day. That's right. Exactly. So are you into sort of, uh, routinization, uh, habits with, with work stuff too? Do you have like a set schedule every day, every yeah. week that you kind of rely on? Yep. 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 I've, uh, I've, I've experimented a lot with it. I know I'm just like everybody else. I'm not sure if you've read the, the book when I think it's Daniel Pink's book. Uh, talks about. No, I've, I've heard good things. Yeah, really good. It's, it's, so that kind of confirmed the things that I'd already noticed about myself, that there are sort of like peak areas of my day where I'm, I'm functioning high at a high level from creativity or just from a general productivity standpoint. It's usually between like 8 to 11, 1130-ish or so. So I try mm-hmm. to put the most important things that I want to get accomplished in that, that time of the day. Is that um, going to be deep work kind of uh, production related stuff? Yep. Yeah. It's like, uh, because right now we're early stage, a lot of like process and just general systems aren't set up. So I try to reserve that time for those things to think about how do we get the most out of the resources we have. Um, and I'll usually reserve my meetings for after, like after 12 or one o'clock. Um, not because those aren't important, but because I want to, I want to manage my, my thinking time. Um, and the other thing too, is, uh, taking breaks, like, because I worked from home before with the the poker uh, thing, I've learned that if you do not like sort of coach yourself to good behaviors, you'll just do whatever your instinct is, which is usually not the most optimal way to run your day. So I'll put in like a good, you know, like in the morning I get a reminder on the, on the phone at eight to do some meditation. So I do 15 mm-hmm. minutes of meditation and then usually like five ish, six ish, I'll take a break no matter what. I'm working on just to take a walk and get some fresh air, kind of refresh the the mind. But yeah, I think it's really important to, to manage yourself. And I'm sure that people are realizing that that have never sort of like been forced to do that before the, the pandemic are now realizing how important it is to manage your day because um, going every single day in your house with just loaded up on coffee is a surefire way to burn yourself out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, frenetic anxiety throughout the day. You're never fully productive and you're never fully relaxed. Even right. though I had been working remote for a long time, I've fallen into that trap during the pandemic too, because I had mm-hmm. these bookends or like these uh, recalibrations throughout the day. Like I would wake up and, you know, do my meditation, do my morning routine, get into a, a workflow of like deep work. And then I would do coffee shops and I would kind of mm-hmm. get out of the house and that would sort of break up the routine. And by the time I was done, like I'd come home and that would signal the relaxation. But now right. I've been forced to like create new, I guess, new routines, new bookends uh, in that regard. Yep. Yeah. I got like a, a salt lamp in my room and I usually like only light that up at night. So I know that when I leave my office, it's like, that's the chill zone. That's where like reading is done. I keep the TV off. Um, those are just little examples. I know people that go to the extreme in those things, but, um, but you know, the, the, the days are passing. I mean, like we, I think we went home for the pandemic must've been a week before March. So it's almost a year now. And, uh, you know, it's like any other thing, if you're going to set habits, you have to be intentional about what, what it is that you want to do with your time. So, so that intentionality, I totally agree with. One thing that I've struggled with is um, uh, I can have my individual productivity and routines in place, uh, locked down, but the external world 
puts a <laughs> throws a wrench in that, sure, especially yeah. at large companies. And you've worked at all all different sizes of companies: HubSpot, Drift, and now this startup. Do you find that it's easier? Do you find it's different uh, maintaining a schedule like that? Clearing your schedule in the morning is something that I would love to do, and some days I just can't because I have people in Ireland or whatever. So have have you had to change your routine? Is it like more optimal now, or like what's the difference between different companies? Yeah, I mean, obviously you have you have a lot more people depending on you when you're in a larger you know a larger org, um, and so ultimately you don't really control your your day as much as you do when you're um, when you're the person kind of leading the team. But with with that responsibility comes a lot of things you also have to think about. Um, like I'm less managing now to people's schedule and what they want of me, and I'm more like thinking how do I maximize my time and my output because again, we're, we're a small company. We've, you know, it's, uh, we've, we only have so many bullets in the, in the bank. And so we need to be, mm. we need to be optimizing for the best outcome, not necessarily the most agreeable outcome. And I think that's, that's something that I thought a lot about because one of my like downsides is not being able to say no to things. And, um, that's a real problem. Like I always want to help everybody. I want to get involved in the things, but when you're sick people and you can't say, Hey, what is the most important thing I need to do today? That's going to help us grow for tomorrow. And the, in the day after, if you're not super, super clear on that, then you should probably take some time away from work and think about what that is because uh, just doing whatever comes first to mind, I think is a mistake that um, becomes more prevalent at smaller companies than it does bigger ones. So, you know, bigger companies, you could be in meetings all day. The company's got plenty of runway, you know, you might, your, your goals might be short, but like, there isn't quite the amount of pressure that there is when you're in a smaller company and you know that every minute does count. Mm, I love that. So my experience in startups is the exact same where uh, my bosses would always check me and be like, hey, is what you're working on the most important thing you can be working on? Not is it important or is it useful? Is it the most important thing? Because if you're wasting time, if you're prioritizing incorrectly, that mm-hmm. wasted dollar means a lot more at the startup stage. Whereas a large company, if you you know, spend additional time in meetings. If you spend additional time working on something that's not fully optimal, like the best possible thing, it's barely noticeable, but as a startup that can, that can kill you, you know? Yep, definitely. I mean, especially with us because we're, we're at such a low price point. And um, the other temptation is that like, I was a customer of this company and I'm kind of the target buyer. So a lot of questions mm-hmm. about what should we build? Why, what are some feature adjustments we should make, which is exciting. And I love being brought into those things. But I learned the first few weeks that, wow, time is flying by and I need to pick what I I put my attention on and when. Um, Super important. So I'm definitely going to ask how you choose to place your time and attention on something and how you prioritize. But first, um, you're the director of marketing at Phrase. That's right. Yep. What do you do all day as a director of marketing? (laughs) That's a good question. So anything that involves uh, the brand, the design, the positioning, the acquisition. Um, I also work on things like how do we reduce churn, et cetera. We have a team, we have basically, we have sort of like four inputs to how the company grows. We have, we have a head of sales, we have a head of growth, the CEO and myself. And so each of us have our defined OKRs. Like we have retention goals for the head of growth, we have acquisition goals for me, but we oftentimes do blend across a couple different things because some of us have expertise that others do not. So we always complement each other in that way. But ultimately, my my like at the end of this quarter, the success or failure of my job is driving traffic and signups for the for the platform. 
yours is getting people in the door and the head of growth sounds more product related, figuring out which features are going to cause people to stick around for longer, tell their friends, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. So Matt, Matt, um, Matt's great. He came from form labs and, uh, he's, you know, been at tech stars before. So he, he gets the, the small business, uh, you know, mindset and, um, yeah, so we have, do we, we do have crossover. Like a good example is we built a, a feature where you could basically, um, look at a template to do some content optimization um, and pull it right into the product and start using it. Now those are indexable. So they're an asset we're going to use to draw in traffic, but they're also part of like the overall loops of the system and how we grow. So that was a project we both worked on, but it impacts both of our, our, our goals. That makes sense. Uh, real quick, can we back up and um, can you pitch me phrase? Uh, what does phrase do? Yeah. Um, I know we, we use it at the agency, but pretend yeah, yeah. let's, uh, you know, this is a fresh one. Yeah. So everybody knows phrase. Uh, the people who know about phrase know it about the ability to optimize your content for search engines. Um, but the, the general premise that the company was built on is that today we're in a, what is called an answer economy where people want answers quickly and easily. And so um, we help people drive traffic from search engines by optimizing their content for voice search, for featured snippets, for long form content, all the types of things that, uh, that are great for, for traffic growth. On the other side of the business, we have an artificial intelligence product that basically accelerates the path from when somebody lands on a landing page to the point that they become a customer. Hmm. So some use cases of that are, um, and, and to be more specific, so basically the, the, the bot crawls your website and creates a Google-like index of your content so that when somebody comes to the site from that article you just created, they then have follow-up questions naturally. So if you wrote a post about like, let's say like AB testing, right? Maybe one of the, um, maybe somebody lands on that because they're a beginner in AB testing. They have natural follow-up questions like how to run an experiment, how to, et cetera, from the, the content. And so most websites are not designed very well for these type of paths. They have, uh, they're very heavy on architecture, they're heavy on links, they're heavy on CTAs. But what this does is it, it, it knows everything about your website's content and proactively suggests next steps or next, next questions so that you can drive people deeper into your site. Is, that's like a recommendation engine. So if I land, is it just blog posts? So if I land at a blog post, like what is customer churn? Um, then that's pretty high intent, or I mean, high, uh, sorry, top of the funnel. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that's going to suggest me the next se- sequential article, essentially in that customer journey to get me further and further bottom funnel to the point at mm-hmm. which I'm like, all right, I know what customer churn is. And now I understand that there's tools that can help me reduce customer churn. Is, th- is that yep. sort of the gist of it? That's one application. So a good exi- like that would be a top of funnel example where you're looking to acquire people from one piece of content to, the, to deeper in the funnel. But you can also index your help articles, your technical docs, your, uh, you know, anything related to best use cases about your product. Um, you can put the bot anywhere that is, you know, has a live URL. Um, and you can also index any live content that is indexable either through um, like a sitemap file or crawling the site manually. Um, we give everybody the flexibility to basically create the experience they want. Could this be like a conversion optimization tool as well in that you could put sure. it on like a pricing page or like yeah. a whatever landing page that um, people typically have questions. Maybe it's like, does this integrate with MailChimp? Does this, That's right. you know, all, all that yeah. stuff. It seems like it could answer some of those questions right before the purchase as well. 
Yeah, totally. And the the nice part about it too is, you know, it operates similar similarly like search site search where, uh, you know, let's say the pricing example, um, there might be a thousand questions asked in your pricing page. So what phrase does is it clusters the questions by topic. And so on the back end, you can say, okay, what's my strategy here? People are asking these questions about pricing. Um, I can work some of those into the page content. I can train custom responses from the bot where I don't want that to be publicly indexable on the, the page, but it's a critical question to how somebody uh, would convert or not. Um, we give you sort of like the flexibility to, to optimize the experience uh, depending on how you want to go about it. Mm. So now, now that I hear it like this, it's this mixture of like SEO optimization and CRO kind of optimization. It yep. seems like it, this role found you kind of, it seems like the perfect match. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, so the, the story of how I, I found out about the company, I, I, uh, I sent a tweet out and I was, you know, I was still running SEO and acquisition at Drift. And I'm like, I'm drowning in content operations. Like, how do I help the team scale up? Because you build an editorial sheet, all your keywords are in there, your titles, et cetera. You send it off to your team. Ultimately what happens is the content comes back, not the way that you expected. Mm-hmm. And everybody can relate to that who's an SEO, right? So I started writing these really detailed content briefs to, you know, basically give people really good guidelines. Like here's, especially, you know, in the space we're in, you know, the, the drift is in, like, that's a highly competitive uh, space mm-hmm. and content quality is super important. So I was, I was looking for a solution that would help me kind of scrape all the, the right data sources so I could quickly create these briefs to scale up and found that phrase actually does that as well. So I'm using it and I'm talking to the CEO and I'm getting real excited about it. And, you know, and I'm also on customer calls while I'm at, at Drift and I'm thinking, man, some of the questions they're asking about just getting people quicker to the destination on their site, but do it in a, in a conversational engaging way. What, like, it seems a lot easier to do that with this technology, which actually understands your website content versus it being almost like a, decision tree, like fragmented kind of like experience where you have to do it manually. Um, just an interesting take on how to understand a website and drive people deeper. So I, I, uh, I, I watched them develop this product while I'm using it on the, on, for, for our content operations. And I'm like, I get it now. The, the light bulb went off to me that this is basically a way to pre-train the AI model versus starting from scratch. And there are great sites that could use this, big sites with a lot of content. Who have a great knowledge graph for it to learn, and that's that's how I got really pumped about it. Hmm. It sounds like it's starting from a place of uh, uh, humility or ignorance instead of like I find a lot of marketers with personas and customer journeys seem to know everything. It's like, oh, hey, this blog post, and then we got to put this CTA for this next blog post, and this follows up with the landing page offer for this ebook, and it's sort of yep. orchestrated from the top down. But I don't yep. think anybody ever second guesses that and says like, is this the proper customer journey? Is this the way that people should flow through? And this is sort of a bottoms up way in saying like, let's watch the customer walk through the website and see how they actually like navigate and what sequential content should be as opposed to planning this out as if you knew what the customer wanted. Yeah. I think that the gold is the data. Like if, if you could somehow go into your customer's mind and say, I know every question that that person has on this topic, on this page, in this entire journey. And we can optimize for that in several ways. We can either answer directly on the content, you know, that, that helps you draw in more traffic. We can uh, have follow-up questions that get them to the next stage in their journey. 
Um, a lot of those other approaches are great, but they're really hypothesis driven. Like, hey, I know Alex, he's interested in TRO and A-B testing. Here's the things I'm going to put on the site. We're going to test it. We're going to get to sample size. We're going to continue to, to do that. Whereas the opposite is like, I don't know what Alex wants. I actually am just going to wait until I collect data and I can input some of these ideas I have, but ultimately it's about like, how do we solve for what actually the intent is and get people deeper in the site. So it's just an interesting way to, to think about it because the, uh, you know, we're getting into an era where a lot of these platforms, like they're just not giving you the data they used to. And so mm-hmm. how do you get user data that's actually useful can actually impact your conversion rate. So you studied journalism? Yes, that was my, my major in school. Yep. Uh, why? Um, I actually might. So my, my initial, uh, passion was baseball. I wanted to be a baseball stats in like, you know, I was all into, into, um, the science of baseball. Um, Boston university used to have the sabermetric seminar, which is like the geeks paradise of the world for baseball. Did, <laughs> did you go to Boston university? I didn't go there. No, but I, oh. but I, um, the conference was held in their, uh, mm-hmm. their science center and, um, they would have scouts from MLB teams, guys to work in the big analytics offices. And it was, it was really cool. And I got really into it early on and uh, like storytelling and math has always been something that I've been like attracted to. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that later on in life, I'm like, Oh, that's pretty good combination, but it started there. That's, that's what I, that's where I I found the love of like telling stories with data. If that makes sense. Yeah. You were a baseball fan. Who, Who was your team? I don't really have a favorite team. I, I, uh, because of like the, the stats kind of like thought mindset is like, there's amazing players on this team. There's amazing players on this team. And I grew up in Boston. So that always confuses people quite a bit when I'm like, I don't really have a favorite team. The Red Sox, if they win or lose, I don't really care, but that's not a common opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Guess who played against them last week? And he was amazing. That's, that's my, that's my general idea. That's interesting. So the journalism background, uh, the poker background, are you, you're a Michael Lewis fan. You have to be. Yeah, Moneyball. I mean, who hasn't seen the the movie? If you haven't seen it, Moneyball is fantastic. Definitely check it out. <laughs> Immediately, uh, what I thought of, I was I was going back and I listened to a bunch of interviews that you had done, um, which was kind of weird because like we talk and are friends, but I was like, oh yeah, I'm just like going back and listening to Bill's interviews. But I didn't know the baseball connection, and I thought that was fascinating because it does now. It makes so much sense in retrospect, the storytelling yeah. plus the statistics and data background. Yeah, yeah. I I um I had my own blog. It was called MLB Perspectives, and then I I uh, started writing for this site called Fansided, and was doing like player analysis. And in the meantime, it just it was my like creative outlet, you know. And uh, actually, when I went to go apply for a job at HubSpot, I talked more about the baseball blog and driving a subscription and getting a newsletter started, all that stuff on my own. They actually were way more interested in that than they were like hey, you went to school for this or, you know, you've done this or that. It was like real world application. And at the time, I actually didn't know that I was doing marketing. I knew nothing about marketing at the time. So I just knew that I wanted to be involved in the space and I wanted to meet people who are interested in, in, this, in this stuff. And it just so turned into a career, which I didn't intend. <laughs> when did so. you start the blog? Was that in college or directly yeah. after? Yeah, it was in college. I used to, um, I used to go to the, you know, I would sit behind home plate, ask the scouts questions. They'd be writing there on their notepads with their radar guns. And when I was a little kid, I would be like, "What are those guys doing? Like, there's got to be mm. something amazing that they're doing that I don't understand." And so when I got into school, I was like, "What are, the, you know, I wanted to to write, but I wanted to write about something I love." 
like writing for something that I don't love is, is not something I'm, I, I was really interested in. And baseball was that, was that thing for me. So. Yeah. You must, you must have had some uh, example or inspiration to have started a blog like that in maybe you didn't even call it a blog then, or I don't know what you thought of it as, but I, <laughs> yeah. I thought of this, like I was into music and I wrote for the music magazine in, in college and wrote some stuff on like, awesome. music and, and all that. And it sounds similar. Like yeah. I looked at it, not as marketing. I didn't think about marketing at all. I looked at it as like a journalistic kind of interest-based thing. Is that kind of the lens that you were approaching it from? Like this is journalism. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, I don't know, you're planning on like monetizing via affiliate or building a membership site. Like it was just yeah. the, the content, the journalism. That's that's 100% right. And I actually still see that in the content that you put out today. It's like very like it's the way that you, you break down ideas reminds me of like the way I would think about like breaking down a player in baseball. It's like, here's what it is. Here's why, like you, you go into these, like, like really like well thought out sections. And when I was, um, when you, when you write about something you're passionate about, it, it shows in the quality of work. And when you're, when you're just starting to, to, to launch something like whether it's a music blog or um, a baseball blog, you can always tell if somebody really, really goes the extra mile in their content or like has some sort of like, they've done their homework, you know? Um, I'm sure with music, there's tons of people who are just pumping out blogs all the time because they have to. But if you're doing an interview and you really love that space, I think it comes out in, in the quality of your content. Yeah, I, th I think that style of writing is both fulfilling and frustrating because for me, I, I'm never satisfied with like the surface level answer. The deconstruction is really like the name of the game. And right. I ask like, all right, A-B testing is important. Why? Why? What evidence is there for that? And then I'll, I'll dive in deeper layer by layer and be like, well, what is an A-B test at, at its core? It's like a research methodology. Well, how does that help you? And I'll, I'll just dive deep to like the furthest layer down of like first principles. And then I realize I've spent fucking four months writing a blog post. I'm like, <laughs> what is AB testing? This should have just been published for beginners or something like that. Yep. And yep. it reminds me of this. Uh, I was studying German, kind of dropped it since, but I remember coming across this word. They have tons of stuff like this, but uh, passion is translated as like uh, Leidenschaft, I believe. I might be getting mm -hmm. this wrong, but it loosely translates to the craft of suffering. So I found that to be makes sense. Pretty intriguing. So there was <laughs> a, a level... musician. I can also appreciate the suffering aspect. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So <laughs> to this, there's, there's a level of purity that you don't often see in marketing and SEO content. Do you, do you think there is a dichotomy between that and something that you're incredibly passionate about versus making work on like a business and acquisition level? I mean, a lot of yeah. SEO driven content, it doesn't on the surface, it doesn't seem like a lot of people are really diving deep and deconstructing like a journalist would. Yeah, that's a good question. I think like there's a, in even, you know, at, at jobs that I've, I've, I've been at, usually when I first start, they're excited. They're like, Hey, let's go, you know, we're going to, we're going to grow our traffic. But um, the thing you have to keep in mind is that the internet's a huge place, right? So um, some of the formulaic things you see out in, in the marketplace, um, it feels formulaic because maybe you have gone into that content with a, a pre sort of disposed, like, um, top, you know, a predisposed understanding of the topic. And so there are many people just like I was when I first started getting into marketing who don't know about that topic. And so over the years, what's happened is in order for people to capture all the intents that people have on a specific topic, what it's turned into is kind of like this formulaic structure that you quote unquote have to, um, 
you have to create to, 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 to draw in that traffic. But like all things with search, um, that's how it is today. It doesn't mean that I'll be like that forever. Um, I think that there are just some sort of rules that you have to understand when you're creating something for search that there's a lot of people in this world and there's a lot of different ways somebody could come about a specific topic. Um, and it's super important for you to sort of see from different perspectives. If you're going to do a really good job on writing for something, understand that, you know, the grandmas in the room that have never heard about this topic might be reading that as well. And people who are really sophisticated might be using that same exact term, but their behavior when they get on that page might be different. Um, writing for passion versus writing for SEO is something I hear folks talk about all the time. I think it really depends on what your goals are for, for what you're writing about. If, if you're writing about search, you need to go into to the understanding that you aren't writing for yourself. You're writing for the people who are going to read it. And when you take that, like that hat off of like, I feel badly about this. And you think more like, how do I make an amazing article? that's going to help the person that I want to help understand this topic. Well, that's when I think that the light bulb goes off for a lot of writers who um, sometimes like they'll feel like I don't get to express my ultimate creativity or like my unique perspective on this, but that's because you're looking at an intrinsic way. How do I feel about the content when there are millions of people out there searching for that information. If you can really deeply understand what other people want and you can help them achieve that goal. If you have that motivation, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And um, there's room for content that doesn't, doesn't align to search, or maybe it's about creating an opinion that is different from the norm. And there's plenty of places for that type of content. But when you're, when you're driving uh, search traffic, you have to understand there's millions of different types of people out there looking for um looking for information. And so you have to, you have to take that hat off for a second and really think about how you can solve their problems. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a, a way of aligning incentives, I guess, like your look Google's incentives. If you just look at it from a first principle perspective is to keep people on their search engine and searching sure. using Google as a search tool. So basically sure. they have to provide value to do that. And for them to provide value, they should be giving the best possible answer to the queries so if you map that, if you like try to align the incentives, like your job is to answer the question that people are asking in the best possible way. Right. And it seems like there's wiggle room within there. That's right. To say like, maybe the, the top 10 aren't answering it exactly the best possible way. And like, I can match that expectation, still create the similar format that would be appropriate for answering this query and then add some on top, add my angle, add my like passion, add like whatever additional context I have. And that's maybe a way to blend the two worlds, but it seems like you have to start from the perspective that like, this is a query. People are expecting something in this format. If it's what is X, they expect a short answer and like kind of a pithy thing that they can walk away with. If it's yeah. like how to do X, it's like, you know, step-by-step listicle format. And it's like fitting that, that into that box is important, but then from there, maybe you have some wiggle room. Yeah. I mean, like th- what you said is super important. It's like, what, what are you, what are you trying to do? Um, there's so much room for just like mind blowing content that changes your perspective on something, but it depends on, on who you're speaking to and where they're at in that, in that journey. Um, if somebody just wants a quick answer, you need to understand that and this is what I love what you just talked about. Let's talk about Google's alignment and what they're focused on. They're focused on removing friction, getting people quick answers and getting ultimately ad clicks. And 
part of you optimizing for that experience means that you do have to fit, fit your stuff within a certain framework if you want to be successful. But if you do that really well, then you get the permission to then tell your story after that. So it's so important to understand there are rules to this game and there are certain ways you can optimize your content. And I'll take your content, for example, I'm always championing all the stuff you put out because I think it's fantastic. That's a great example of having your own perspective, going deep on a topic, but understanding that there are rules to the game. If you want to be found, you have to play within those rules and you can add your own element to it, which I think is, is probably one of the hardest things to do in content is to take the art and the science of both of those and make it all into one thing. Hundred mm. percent. Those have been my hardest pieces. I knew I wanted to rank for brand awareness for some reason. Actually, that one started as like a query in my own mind because I heard people say, um, "Hey, this campaign didn't succeed in our KPIs, but actually, it you know got a lot of engagement, so the brand awareness was great." And I was like, "Well, right. that seems." not right. Like, I I don't know about that from a data skepticism perspective. So that led to me thinking I should write an article about this. And I searched the keywords, you know, like what is brand awareness? So I wanted to fit it within that framework, but to do so, it it would have been very easy if I could just say, all right, I'm just going to basically copy what the top 10 has done and maybe add like 200 words, but I couldn't do that because I had this purity. So I was trying to blend the two worlds. And that was the hardest possible thing is trying to blend kind of like the passion, the take that I had on it with the answer that people expected, the short pithy thing that was like, what is brand mm-hmm. awareness? But yeah, it was impossible. Um, but eventually it happened. It took a long time. Right. You have to earn the right to get in front of people. And before you can do that, you either pay to do it or you write something that Google clearly thinks is the best fit for this specific answer. Once you've earned that right, then you can do whatever you want. Like, I I think it would be a shame if somebody was researching A-B testing and didn't find something you've written on it, because I feel like the content's really, really good. You have unique perspective on it. So it would be in your best incentive to understand how to take that perspective and then get it in front of as many people as possible. Um, And, you know, you can make it easier on yourself. Like a good example is, you can write something that you're you're going passion first and then adding the layer of performance on top of it. You can start with what are people looking for and then add the more thought-provoking content. You can do just content that's just designed for a search and then say, when they get on site, I'm gonna go also show them other content. There's a lot of different ways you can do it, but you have to you have to understand that there are rules to the game. And Google has incentives that are different from the content creators. Their incentive, like you said, keep them on site, keep the answers coming and create the best experience possible. And you know what I mean? That loop is going on and on. So, Do you consider yourself a a generalist or a specialist or a T-shaped marketer? Like where do you fit yourself? Oh my God. I think that's definitely gone towards like more of a generalist the past, (laughs) the past like few months because of, you know, the, the, um, the responsibilities that you have to be the like the head of marketing at a place. I mean, I actually had a really good conversation with uh, Kevin Indig, who just went over to Shopify about this. Mm. And we were both right before I was deciding or whether or not where I wanted to go next. And I think that um, I consider myself more of a generalist now, but with the, the weapons to go do specific things that will help the funnel grow, like with SEO and, and, and acquisition. Um, but like, I, I feel like I'm the most motivated now to do things that I, almost didn't care or appreciate as much about like messaging, copywriting, like, you know, like more like stuff that's more, I don't want to say fluffy, but like my mind has always been in the data, always like the funnels and thinking that way. But 
as I've zoomed out and I've seen the other parts of marketing done really well across all these different companies, it's, it's opened my eyes up a bit to like, hey, actually, maybe there is some exciting stuff over here on this other part of marketing. So. Yeah. So following that, this may sound weird. Uh, it's meant to be a compliment, but um, you seem like a generalist who maybe accidentally became a specialist. Like, I don't know if you stumbled into SEO, <laughs> but like your brain, when I talk to you, you sound like somebody who connects patterns really easily. You obviously have a diverse background in like journalism and uh, poker and baseball and music and like all these different interests. And I see you connect yeah. them via like different mental models and different frameworks. So that to me, that's what I do. And I consider myself kind of a generalist in that sense. Yeah. But I, now I'm wondering, like, how did you get it? Because SEO would be your specialty if you had to say, right? SEO content, potentially yeah. paid. Yeah. Acquisition in general, I think mm -hmm. is, is, is the thing I'm like, if I could pick one thing to do for the rest of my life, it would probably be that because I like the psychology and the math and, and all that stuff. But um, but again, like the go back to the to the music example. I realized real quick, I would be way better off being an observer than being in it day to day. And once you do it, you realize that same thing with baseball. I realized, Hey, Bill, you're 5'10". You have no athletic ability. Um, probably time to go write about it than to play it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you don't get those, like, you don't get those, uh, learnings until you, you dive in. And I think, I think you also do the same thing. Like you find something you're passionate about, you go do it. You're probably like, if I fail, what's the downside? There really isn't any, you know, like you want to manage to like, what are the things I, I, uh, I'm really passionate about? What are the things that are just like that, that I can go do? And sometimes you fail and sometimes you realize this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be, but you end up taking something from that and then applying it to other areas that you can potentially benefit from. Yeah. I'm still trying to find my specialty or what I want to spend 10,000 hours on. I've, I've done a lot of dabbling. The music thing's interesting. Did you want to be a musician at one point? Yeah. And I, I stunk. I, I was not very good at it. I, what did I you play? Bass guitar. Yeah. Um, I, I had like a two or three year sprint where I went like, I, I fell in love with music when I was a kid, but never, never really got into it. And um, in high school, I used to go to the American Legion uh, shows around my area. Like we're really into like, you know, like the punk scene and stuff like that when mm -hmm. I was a kid. And I met this guy, um, Casey. So he, he's actually the, the singer for a band called the Deer Hunter. They're really, really good. Um, this is way back in the day, but he showed me how to use Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. um and reason and all those other like music production uh softwares and so I, I just went for it i like dove in for a couple of years and um realized i couldn't turn into a career but it's a passion that i still love today and i, I just love music and um it's been a it's been a big uh big thing in my life so. how how old were you when you met casey and learned pro tools and all that probably like 16 or 17 or so i was a young 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 man um and i also like you know um, just, just being exposed to people who are the best at what they do is just mind blowing. You know what I mean? Like I, I never, I never had any future in music at all, but being like in the universe of people who like were actively doing it was kind of a, an interesting experience. And like, I got the same exact feeling when I was like doing the baseball stuff. It's like, you're within striking distance of people who are doing something really cool stuff. And that gets you fired up. Same thing with marketing. You go to these conferences, you meet people who are like the experts at it. That's, that's where I like to be, right? Right where somebody's doing something interesting that you can learn from. Yeah, so that's interesting. My, I, I got into music probably the same time, maybe a little earlier, but I, I grew up in a really small town in Wisconsin and yep. nobody was really into music, especially the type that I was into, punk rock, same thing. 
Um, so I started college as a music major because I thought that's what I wanted to do. I was in a band. <laughs> it was a big thing. So like I had seriously considered this as a career. And the moment that I got to college, I was surrounded by all these people who had been playing piano since they were three years old, who Terrifies had you. perfect pitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? And I went through a semester and did the classes and I felt like I learned a lot, but it wasn't fun anymore. And towards the end, I just felt like I was kind of struggling and like dissecting the music in that way. wasn't what I liked. So it was actually really relieving that I got that out of the way. And I realized that this isn't the career for me. This is just something that I want to engage in with the rest of my life because it's a creative output. Did you have a moment uh, where you realized, hey, this isn't the career. This is just a passion. This is something that I just want to like engage in on the side. Like, what was that moment for you? A hundred percent. I feel like we've had this moment a few times so like in conversations, but same thing happened to me. I switched my major to music. I realized, holy crap, these people are way more prepared They've had way more time. They've dedicated their life to this. Now, you could, when you go through those moments, you have kind of, you're at a crossroads. You can say, oh my God, I suck. I wasn't able to turn this into my career. It's sad. Uh, I'm not going to get over it. Or you can say, whoa, awesome. Got to get exposed to all these cool things. Now I see music from a different lens and it's actually increased my, my enjoyment of, of music. Um, but I never really saw it as like a failure, I guess, you know what I mean? Like, um, you try things and you move on and that's kind of the way I think about business. Like, and, uh, you know, that, that actually helps with just investing in general. It's like, you don't want to get into the sunk cost mentality. Like we both went through the music phase, probably went to a lot of shows when we were in high school said, wow, really love this. Let me go try it as a, a professional application. You realize, ooh, this isn't quite what I expected. This is actually different from, from what I was enjoying it as. And it's okay to stop doing something if you don't feel the passion for it. I think the, the mistake is not going for it, never knowing that you and I could have been musicians. And then when we wake up and we're 80 years old and we go, man, I wonder what would happen then. I want to avoid that as much as humanly possible. That's, that's the thing I run away from the most. So I'd rather try something and fail, at least have some cool stories and uh, experiences and then go find something else, you know? Yeah. Well, I actually, I don't think it's a failure at all. I actually think of it as a success in my life. Um, I'm going to be a fucking nerd and relate this to AB <laughs> testing. So <laughs> there's a couple Let's approaches. <laughs> if you, if you have an idea in your head, you could be really passionate about it and put it on paper. You can execute it and, you know, put it live on the website and uh, if you never test it, it's like you could keep going on and on and it could actually tank your conversions. It could be a horrible thing for your website. So you might as well A-B test that and make sure that you can like parse out like whether it's a winner or a loser. And <laughs> if it's losing, idea. chop it, <laughs> do the next right. thing. So yeah. I think like we had a little mini A-B test in terms of like the career stuff. And we realized that, all right, music's not the winner for the career, but there's probably stuff you can learn. In my, in my specific instance, I remember our band was pretty musically bad we could i think we yeah. wrote decent songs but we were not musically talented sure but <laughs> during our shows we would always have the most people in the audience uh so we were very good at marketing and i realized right. that quickly after uh the music thing kind of flamed out because i was like all right what do i do next what do i major in you know it's a ex exploration time in um in college and uh i realized like business marketing like we booked out venues we booked bands like we brought people in that seems like a lead did you, did you have any lessons from your kind of music trials that led you to believe that, I, I guess journalism was your next standpoint, um, that led you to that next step that you took from? Yeah, I think like after you do a few things that fail, if you think deeply about them, you're like, what are the things I want to do in my life? 
Like I want to be financially successful because that brings me the ability to do things that I can't do otherwise. It's not the only thing by far, but it does afford you the ability to go do things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Um, I want to be able to take my care of my family too, which is something that's really tough to do if you're a musician or you're a journalist. Those are the things that I, I thought deeply about when it came time to make a decision. And so I said to myself, what are the aspects of those things that I enjoy most? For music, it's being creative and not and understanding that you can create something from nothing that didn't exist before and there's no rules in place. Just go figure it out. Um, with journalism, it was like telling stories and like working really hard on something that I like, I really want to like get live and create something. So those, those learnings of the creative process were the things that I said to myself, what can I do that's quantifiable that I can see lasting in the future that have aspects of that. And for me, it was like, you're already doing part of it with the, with the blog, you have the creative aspects of it. And then, Hey, as I started to research marketing, I'm like, Oh, there is a quantitative part of this. This is like, this is my thinking back in the day. It's, it seems relatively, uh, you know, simple, but um, I was thinking like marketing was like billboards and creative and like PDFs and flyers but I didn't even know that the quantitative side of marketing existed. This is like 2007, a long time ago, mm -hmm. I'm an old man. So back then like AdWords and everything was still becoming kind of like a big deal in the early, you know, middle two thousands. And I think I just, I got at the right time too. You know what I mean? Like right at the time when analytics was really becoming a big thing. Um, but yeah, I, I mean like ultimately the more you're exposed to in your life, the more you can, it's like an A-B test. <laughs> I know we're going to go back to that all the time. You can deduce the losers. And sometimes there are like fringe winners, right? Where you're like, oh, that's really cool about that. But I don't like that part. Mm -hmm. um, like you have to expose yourself to a lot of scenarios for you to build up that knowledge base. And I'm not saying by any means I have anything figured out. I mean, who knows? Like I've always said that in the future, I want to do like some nonprofit or something in education to help people learn. Because that's something I'm passionate about too. Um, so maybe marketing is actually a springboard for that. We'll, we'll see. You know, I got a lot of time left on, on this planet. So I've always wondered that too. Like what's the next step when you look in hindsight, it always seems so obvious, but like, where, what's, what's this a springboard for so That's a really good question. I'm going to come back to that. Cause I actually do want to follow up on that, but I want to tie back uh, with the music and the journalism. Cause we have mm -hmm. the weirdest similarities in our background. Like <laughs> I studied journalism too, and the music thing. Yep. Yep. So journalism for me, it made me inquisitive. It made me understand. Like, I want to want to get down to the the core truth of something. Uh, tease out first principles. Tease out the actual story. Music. One big lesson I took outside of just the fact that I was good at the marketing side of it was that I enjoy activities that engage both the left brain and the right brain. So the quant side and the creative side. Um, and I think music is one of the best examples of that. You're following a pretty rigorous framework. Music theory is highly mathematical and highly technical. <laughs> But if you that. <laughs> totally, it's, it's impossible. It like hurts my brain. I started going yeah. back over it over the pandemic a little bit. And I was like, man, I forgot how hard this was. <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult. <laughs> you, you know, if you just look at like the music theory and just play that side of things, like your music's never going to have soul. And if you just do the creative side of things, it's never going to have structure. So you have to blend the two together. And that's what I found, really especially in the world of conversion rate optimization <laughs> In content marketing, we just talked about that. Literally, we just said like yeah. to do SEO content, you have to fit it in the format. You have to like see things pattern wise. You have to like do things logically and sequentially. But then there's this open space as well. 
Do you think that's the case with you as well? This is something I've noticed in so many marketers. With so many of us have a background in music, there has yeah. to be a connection with this like left brain, right brain, uh, synergistic kind of working style, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot to it, and I, I, the more and more people I meet that are in marketing that have come from all these different uh, like avenues of life, it almost. I hate to say this because there's probably a lot of people who went to school for marketing and work in marketing, but I feel like having these experiences opens your mind up to like how to speak to people more effectively or how to like design something in a way that is unique outside of the everyday that we're doing every single day. You need to have, you need to have influences in your life that are outside of what you do day to day. Um, and I, I think like from the, the content and like the AB testing side of things, it's like, okay, with a song, with an article, with a website page, you're starting with a general hypothesis. Like, hey, here's the thing I wanna go create. Here's the general rules I have. Now, how do I fill in the, the blanks between all those different things? And um, over time, as you hone those skills, you become more directionally accurate with how you start those hypotheses. So like, when you first create content, you're like all over the place. Like I had no strategy. I'm just writing whatever I want in the blog. And then eventually I'm like, oh, wait a second, these worked really well. These worked really well. These worked really well. Why is that? Then I started thinking, why did the content perform well? And how do I like learn more about that? I think some folks are just naturally drawn towards that. Like, I'm, I want to figure out why it works, not just that it works. And I, I think that um, like the more and more experience you have in your life, if you're really inquisitive about things, you'll figure it out. Like we don't do that hard of a job if you think about it. I mean, it's just people, uh, places that they talk. And then there are rules on those systems for how you, uh, how you generate interest for a specific product or service. Outside of that, it's really just like up here. Like, how do I want to talk about this person? How do I, or this product? How do I want to um, build a brand? Like, those are all very ambiguous things that you could do. Like this podcast, for example, you know, you could have had a podcast that's all about SEO and content marketing. Uh, but you chose to do it in a way that's you and it's your, your thing. Um, I think that's going to be like way more magnified in the future because I think deeply about this. I'm like, man, the quantitative side of things, like maybe that's figured out in the future. And all it is is just creative because everything else is just a math problem. And like, as technology evolves, like where's the next generation of skills? Like, is it going to be what we're doing right now versus how to rank a page and going through a formula? Like, those are the, the things I think all about. And I think the people who are going to be successful at the next era, the creative like side of marketing is going to make a comeback and it's going to be more about storytelling and like these types of experiences, you know? So. I think that I would, I would bet on that too. That's something we talked about with David Cadaby in that if you can make a checklist out of it, it's probably going to be automated. Sure. And there's some sides of quant that is actually more creative than most people realize. Like analytics is a highly creative field. If you have the autonomy to to choose your own analyses and your right. A/B tests and stuff like that. Yep. So you touched on one thing um, about like structure and like seeing repeated patterns over time. And uh, I, I definitely saw the connection with music. Like I remember when I would write songs in the early days, I was basically just copying Blink One Eighty Two. Didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Whatever sounded okay, I would basically put down on paper. And then through time and uh, experience, I learned music theory. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's why that worked. Like that was a right. C followed by a G followed by an F. And yep. that's like the common major chord formula or whatever. Like I would start to recognize those patterns. But I wonder, I think it helped my songwriting in a way in like the beginning. But I wonder if sometimes you can get entrapped by um, 
that layering of structure and expertise and experience. Um, and in some cases, maybe just the free flow, you end up stumbling upon formulas that you may not have, have been able to construct from like a, um, is it convergent versus divergent thinking is what I'm kind of going for here, where you're connecting pieces together in a very like critical top-down way versus like discovering and just kind of exploring. Um, the the reason I ask this is because the music connection, um, I watched this guy on YouTube, Rick Beato. Have you heard of this guy? No, not I've heard of him. He's amazing. You would love him. So he's a producer and he like breaks down songs, like why, why they work, why people love him so much. And uh, I listened to one on Radiohead and I'd never been interested in Radiohead that much. Like I like to creep a little bit, you know, but (laughs) I was never a big fan. You're a big Radiohead fan, right? Yeah. Yeah. By far. Yeah. (laughs) So I listened to this breakdown of one of their songs and it was so complicated. It was like the most intense music theory I've ever seen. And I just thought, like, did Radiohead actually mean that? Or did they just kind of fuck around and, like, you know, play some notes and it just happened to be that way? Where it's like, oh, this is the inverted seventh with the added sus nine, blah, blah, blah. It's like, were they thinking about that? I don't know. Like, sometimes I struggle between, like, this idea that we can kind of understand and tease everything out in hindsight. And, like, Mm -hmm. if that's the way that actually people create moving forward. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, I think I I know the exact song you're talking about. Was it... uh... I can't remember. It's, I know it's on in rainbows. That's the yeah. song I'm talking about. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's, it's in a, a seven one. something. Yeah, structure. Yeah, um, that's interesting. So, like, I think that that's such a, a level of mastery to basically approach something from a technical perspective and then make it beautiful. Those mm-hmm. are the types of like when I see those types of things, I'm just like, okay, this is. I know that this is. Not it reminds me of back in college when I'm like, wow, that's that's a beautiful song on top of an incredibly difficult uh, structure. Like that's a beautiful thing. That's a level of mastery that you have to like over time. That's a life's work to be able to do something like that. Because I think like you'll find people, and I think this is especially true in business. You'll find people who like are really good with the creative stuff, but they don't want to know or don't want to approach the analytic side of things. And then you've got the inverse. You've got people who are really analytical, but don't care about the creative side of things. And I think that that's, that's a, a shame because uh, you have to have appreciation for, for both of those things. Like in the, in the song example, it's really hard to find someone who can go do that, right? Who mm-hmm. go approach a song from a technical perspective and also make it creatively beautiful. Um, that's just so mind blowing to me because I, I think that's what I've, that's my, been my evolution with, with marketing and with, with growth and all this stuff is like started with the, the more quantitative. Cause that was the easiest thing for my brain to relate to. But now is like, I'm starting to see some of the impacts of, of the more creative side of the process. It's actually like opened my eyes quite a bit to it. And for music, it was the inverse. I, I love the creative aspect. I liked the idea of not having like rules and that was really appealing to me. But then when I started going through courses and realizing, Oh, like, song structure and like like theory and this and that and it took the joy out of it so to me like there's a lesson there if there's something that you think you love you need to like if you can love it from both the the technical and quantitative side but also from the 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 creative side i think that's like a home run for uh whatever it is you want to do with your life you know I love that. Yeah. That that does seem to be a good indicator that you should just follow that path if you enjoy both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. I wonder too I'm thinking in a business context now. So like that was like the artistic side, the creator side. And that totally makes sense that one person should embody both of those. And that's like a very good signal that that path is for them. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking of like a 
analogy with AB testing. Like there's two approaches and, um, you know, I've actually shifted my ethos to like the opposite side uh, on this one, but there's one set of ideas that says we should gather research. Every AB test idea should have sufficient evidence in order to put it on the roadmap to prioritize. And those with the most evidence get prioritized first. Then there's the other side that kind of approaches from epistemic humility and says, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what customers are going to want. And we, we can't ever describe why an A-B test won. So let's create the most different, the most variable, um, the most wacky ideas and throw them out there because we're, we're capping our risk anyway. You know, it's only going to run for two right. to four weeks. But I could wake up from a, a power nap mid-afternoon and be like, hey, you know, it'd be cool <laughs> yeah. if we threw like animated fireballs in the background or, you know, like yeah. crazy ideas like that. And yep. there's those two approaches. And the way I've reconciled these, I think there's different stages of companies that could deal with different styles. Right. But on one side, it's kind of like a capped risk. Like, you know, it's, it's a little more predictable. Um, yep. You know, it's not going to lose by a lot. It may win by a lot. It may not. And then there's this other side, the experimental ones that may lose by a lot, but they may be total breakthroughs that you could, could never have That's guessed right. before. Yep. So I found building a portfolio that manages to have both of those in different buckets, you know, maybe 80% predictable ones, 20% experimental ones has been sure. a way to allow that creativity while also not burning down the building because you have no structure. Sure. Yeah. I, th- I think so. That's something I, I think a lot about is like, um, it's important to, to, you call this barbell strategy, right? Where you mm-hmm. have, you have high risk, high reward, and you have low risk, relatively predictable, like types of outcomes. So the beautiful part of working in a, in a small company like I am is that you have to be comfortable with risk when you're doing things like when you're working at a six person startup, because ultimately the, like, let's be real. The math is we're not going to we're not going to survive. And we're not going to succeed, right? Like, the, ultimately, most small businesses don't succeed. They have a small amount of runway. They either have a big win or they don't. Some of them grow linearly over time. They grow slowly. That's 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 good. But I think, like, in our case, the risk of not taking big bets is actually the biggest risk mm-hmm. because if it comes down to me versus another company that's us and they have more money and more cash, and that's ultimately what's going to win then we're not going to win. Right. Um, like with AB tests, you can launch like a, a totally random idea. And if you consider that, if it fails, if you consider that a failure, then I don't know. I mean, there's so much to learn from things that go wrong. And I think that the conversation we've been having forward is like, we've, we've had things that we've, we don't do day to day today, but there are things that I've applied from those learnings that help me, in my day to day. Um, like, I don't think I'm a natural born marketer at all. So when you think about testing, you want to be able to take big shots because you have to understand what is it going to take for you to win a specific outcome? Like, you know, if you're, if you're the small guy and you're competing against a large company, you don't take any big shots, you're going to be in a tough spot. You're going to be in a really tough spot. Um, but this goes back to that, that risk, the, the, the whole concept is really about risk, right? Like every single input that we do costs time, money, and energy. And so when you go to test something, you want to at least break even for those things, or at least learn something so you get better. And I don't feel like that's a, that's a loss as long as you learn something and get better out of it. Um, you know, th- there's a, there's always the clock ticking. Like you have to take a certain amount of shots to give yourself a chance to win. I feel like I'm rambling on this topic a bit, but, um, 
but what you said is 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 I'm sure you deal with this every single day, like in your in your day to day. It's like how am I, how do I understand the amount of risk that I'm taking on is appropriate for the things mm-hmm. that I'm doing? And well, this is this is the bread and butter. I feel like this is this is the topic that I think you you and I could have a four hour conversation about <laughs> sure, yeah. and yeah. decision theory. Cause I'm just I know you have a background in poker. Um and I'm gonna ask you to like tell the audience about that background soon. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I'm imagining a guy at the table um, with like almost no chips and a guy at the table with like all of them. And that's like yep. a large company versus a small company. And the risk of going all in for those two people is way different, right? Yep. The person with no chips on the table has to take big risks in order to like ante up and or that's the wrong phrase, but in order to like build up the portfolio in the first place, that's right. whereas like making a poor decision at the level when you've already got a lot, you, you have to like protect the downside much more there. That's right. Um, yeah, there's a there's a poker concept actually for this. There's a there's a, a a concept called ICM in tournaments, incremental chip management, and it's all about mm-hmm. like when you've got a smaller stack, the other guy's got a bigger stack. Every single time the hand is dealt, you're losing a certain percentage of your stack because your blinds come up every eight hands, right? So the average hand is worth X dollars. You've got this many chips. You've got this many rounds that you can go before you go broke. This other guy covers you, so his risk is that. If he puts you in a 50-50 position, he is not at risk to lose. Even if he flips with you and he loses, he's still got chips. He's still in the game. So what is the value of those chips? So they can just right. he could just bleed you dry by just, just keeping money on the table, essentially. Now we're talking about business, right? So like every startup is like a poker tournament. Some people have a lot more chips. Some people have a lot more skill. But if you're able to deduce the risk of each move and understand like, this is the time to press. I'm willing to gamble at this certain thing because I realize that the upside is great and I'm okay with the risk or, Hey, maybe I should fold until this other guy goes out and it reduces my risk and my overall value goes up. Like I know we're going way down the the rabbit hole here on like the strategy side of things, but poker, poker is really just one big game of business. There's risk, there's chips, there's bets. That's pretty much it. In the super simplistic terms, does that just mean as you're smaller, you're allowed or you have to take bigger risks? And as you grow larger, you get more conservative. Is that like the simplest way to sum that up with probably missing yeah. pieces? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, that's the the general rules because you have a lot more at risk, right? Like as you have more people, you have more on the line. The general mindset is to is to to manage to downside. That's like the 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 thing we talk about all the time is like um if you make a, a bet with half of your, your company's cash and you're a huge public company and that fails too much exposure, pretty, big, <laughs> pretty much pretty big mistake, but uh, there's a the case same. maybe to keep 10% of your budget for those risky bets. Right. Because then you still keep 90% and the chance that you lose all that 10%, like you don't lose right. your shirt. You're still in the game. Exactly. That's, that's, ex- we're going back to the same exact concept. Like the, the reality is every single day you're putting chips out there. They're called money. Every single day you're burning cash. And so eventually if you don't do anything, you'll run out. So the question is, you've got these chips, how do you use them? You can do them, you can use them in a, in a very risk, low risk, high probability. You can build a very, very great business with that. With you and your friends, you'll make a lot of money and you'll be, you'll be happy. Some people are more risk averse and more risk tolerant. Sometimes the board wants more aggressive goals for your, for your company. So you've got to make bets that you, um, maybe you have to take on more chips and you lose less of your equity. Like there's a lot of, a lot of things at play. But I think like for 
as a lesson, when you're thinking about how do I build a strategy for whether it's marketing or like in your day to day, you have to really think about that. Like, am I, am I the person who thinks, am I a risk averse person? Like, do, do I not like risk? Am I not willing to take a, a chance on something? Sometimes it's good to push yourself because it, it brings you into these new ways of thinking about something. Just so we don't sound totally insane, because I'm going to ask you more poker questions. Can you please give a background here? You were a professional poker player for many years, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, was in school, um, played uh, small tournaments with my friends, and I noticed these two guys were winning all the time. And uh, I was like, how can that be? This is all just gambling. Like, I didn't understand. So I went to Borders as... <laughs> As I did every single time I wanted to learn something, it was like, oh, this is interesting. Let's go to Borders and figure it out. So I would go to the to the, to the cafe and I read like a basically like a beginner's guide to it and understood like, oh, OK. So every single time I, I do a certain decision, there's something called expected value. If you have a really crappy hand and I go all in and Alex, you know, Alex uh, calls and it's up to the hands to, to play out. If you have a really good hand, and I have a bad hand over the course of time that expected value will be in your favor. Um, the, rea the reality is that most players don't play enough hands for that to, to shake out. You go to the casino once and you play with your friends and then you never come back. You either win or lose. But if you play enough hands over the course of time, the skill will and the edge will play out. So there's systems and rules to that where you can manage your, your money. And so I, I, I learned all this stuff and um, I basically just went, this is right when music was, was like not working out and I was not sure if I wanted to go with journalism. I was in like a real crossroads with my life. And I was like, let me go take a shot at this. So I, I worked really, really hard, built up a skill on that. And then um, one day the US government seized the IPs of all the, <laughs> the major poker sites. I had about like 90% of my net worth tied up in these accounts. And when you went to the login screen, there was just a big flag from the FBI it was like these domains have been seized by the government. So I had a choice, either move to Canada, like all my friends, a bunch of people went to Vancouver and bought places up there. And, and uh, some of them are still doing that today um, or stay in the U.S. and pivot. And so I chose to pivot. So it's insane. Did you <laughs> actually lose all the money? Like, did you ever see it again? Or like what, what happened yeah. with that? So um, it's a long story, but basically one of the sites actually was dipping into player funds from their marketing expenses and uh. went bankrupt. So the gov so the, there was $300 million in player funds out there total. The U.S. government realized this is a disaster. <laughs> so they incentivized uh, poker stars to buy out um, the company called Full Tilt Poker so that they could issue their refunds where I had a lot of my money uh, online. So I had to wait a year and then I had to fill out a bunch of forms. Um, but yeah, that was that was definitely not what I was expecting. But the the thing to keep in mind is, um, even before this, I was already planning like to move out of poker because I realized something is coming that no matter what happens legally, and that's AI and that's software. Mm -hmm. And I was already using software to, to help me track all my playing um, uh, statistics, understanding player you know player tendencies, and it became pretty clear to me that that the future of this is not not very bright. So, um, so even before that, it was like, man, this is going to be a tough road ahead. Um, and today, like the scene today is not even what it used to be. Now it's like a lot of guys are using real-time assistance and software has really like just absolutely crushed the, the actual playing of the game. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
you know, like all in the lesson from this, if anybody's listening to this right now, if you find something that's really profitable and you can crush it, just go, just go as hard as you can. And then, you know, like take advantage of the opportunity while you can, because you never know when it's going to be gone. Do you think that's a meta example of tail risk and expected value? The fact that it could be swept all, I mean, you got it back, but let's say like all that money was just gone. That's, that's sort of a tail risk scenario, right? Like that's a 98% probability that you're going to end up positive. Well, not, maybe not that high because you're still playing poker. So you're still risking your money, but then like this very, very (laughs) small sliver of a chance that you could lose it all versus like if you were, um, I don't know, a local farmer, right? Like the upside isn't going to be that high, but you're almost certainly not going to lose everything. You still have like your land or something like that. It sounds like that's almost an example you could use to like, say the expected value of a given career, you know, given it's like upside and downside kind of probabilities. Yeah. Going down that, that gardener example, like if the gardener had only one small crop of land and a storm hit, Mm. they're out of business. Um, the same thing with poker, instead of uh, vegetables, you're talking about chips and money. So I would never play a game that I was not properly bankrolled for because I knew that no matter how good I thought I was or how good I thought I was playing, there is an expected edge in each game and you have to play a huge sample for that to play out. And I, I, that's like something that poker has really taught me about business is like, um, you really have to think strategic about like the the bets that you make, whether that's like, in marketing or with people like politically, like you want to, you want to pick your battles and make sure that you're, you're, you're being smart about your money because there isn't an endless source of it. Mm -hmm. So two questions on the poker um, theme. The first one is a quick one. How did you, did you learn statistics and quantitative uh, stuff from poker or because this was in college as you were sort of studying journalism? Is this your first education in in probability theory? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a tough road because I didn't like, I didn't really have like a mathematics background. My dad was an engineer. So I I think I had like somewhat of like a a mathematical mind, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was tough. Like I I would, uh, it almost goes back to the example we were talking about the the art and the science. When I first got into poker, I thought I understood it. (laughs) Like every, every great thing I was like, Oh, I, I I can see this guy like reacting this way. And like, I know that that's a sign that he's weak. And I was so confident that that I had that strategy down until I realized I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. It's like that you first, like, you know, what's the, the, the comparison people make all the time. The the, Dunning Kruger. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You think you're an expert and then you realize, Oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's like beginner's confidence of sorts. For sure. For sure. So when I, when I discovered like the application of game theory along with, with poker to how to, so it's a people's game, right? Like people have tendencies and maybe like Alex plays more aggressively in certain spots than other people, but in the aggregate, there's a certain strategy that's fundamentally sound. And I didn't understand that until I really dove into the math of the game. And I was like, Oh my God, even though this, this play works against this, type of player it's actually a losing play overall and here's why and so taking that and blending it with the the side the art side of things was was really really fun and and uh it gives you like a new it's like the music thing once you got under the theory side you're you have a you have a crossroads you're like wow do i really love this do i really want to do this do i want to do i really want to put in the work to 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 make it a career for for poker that that was something that i was like it's me. I can do this. I can control this. I don't have to worry about, you know, uh, getting into school or getting gigs, whatever. Like 
I, I know that if I sit down and I work really, really hard, I can control the outcome and I know that I can succeed at that. Um, so that I think that there's like good lessons in that, but there's also like that isn't scalable, right? Like you go to the business world, it doesn't matter how good you are at A-B testing or SEO, if you can't work with other people and you can't like communicate your vision and you can't do those other things that uh, you can't succeed. So I think there's there's good and in, 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 in bad parts of that. Hmm. So that was my other question is it's almost a cliche to say that poker is a lesson for life or like a analogy for life. You can learn lessons from it. But um, what do you think are some of the most uh, applicable lessons, frameworks, mental models that you've taken from poker and applied not to life per se, but to business, to marketing, to content marketing and SEO? What, what do you think are the most applicable frameworks that you've learned from this? Yeah, I think um, we've talked about dealing with risk, but more so assessing risk. Like I think a lot of people, because we don't, we don't, most of the time we work for a company, we don't put our own like money or, or resources behind it. Maybe you have a budget, but it's not the same. Um, that has maybe respect the entrepreneurs who are out there just putting it on the line every single day. That's mm-hmm. been really cool. Um, I've thought deeply about that. Um, I think dealing with imperfect information is probably the most important thing. Um, like you can run a test, you can do a project. You don't really know what's going to happen, but those aren't binary ways of thinking about it. Like it's either going to work or it's not going to work. Well, if it doesn't work, then what do we learn about? What do we learn from it? And how much energy do we want to put behind it? Um, those are all the things I think deeply about is like, there's a million things you could go do, but we don't know what's going to happen. So how do we assess the problem? Like, could I go invest a bunch of money in paid ads? Sure. Um, do I have a reasonable expectation it'll work? Sure. But you have to assess like, is that the right play for you and your, your team and, and the risk and the situation you're in today? because it could change tomorrow. Um, I think uh, outside of that, um, it's taught a lot of system thinking. Um, for me to, I wasn't really good at the quantitative stuff initially. So I had to think about it in systems. Like I had to break them down to like more simple uh, parts of the process. So like when um, a situation hits you that you don't have the information already, that happens all the time. So how do you put in frameworks to make the decision when you don't know what the, what the right answer is? So somebody does something in poker I've never seen before. I already had worked out in my mind from training and going through like scenarios a million times. How do I think about this problem? So if somebody puts me in a spot that I've never been before in poker, okay, what have I seen before? What's the math tell me? What do I think is going on with this person's mind? I have like buckets of things to check off. And then I say, okay, do we want to push it over 5% this way or under 5% this way? Um, but you need to have systems in place for your decision-making criteria. It can't just be random all the time, right? So if you're working on a project for work and you're thinking to yourself, how do I, if you have to basically recreate the answer from the ground up every time, it makes it really hard to make decisions at scale. So I think the people who are best at making decisions like that are really, really difficult or they don't have great information, they already have a system for breaking that, that problem down. Are these, these are decision uh, trees, rules of thumb, heuristics that you have if you don't specifically have certainty on the answer, if there's some cloudiness. Right. Yeah. I remember listening, I think it was a podcast that I listened to with Annie Duke and she talked about how she learned poker. I, I want to say it was her brother or a friend or something like Howard, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, he taught her essentially stop loss uh, functions where if, if they had this set of cards, she'd just fold. 
Um, and she later learned that like, she didn't need to be that rigid, but like to learn, to start to get like some structure, she had very simplistic rules um, that she could just follow in a given circumstance without even knowing really like the theory of the game or probability or anything like that, just upfront, yeah. simple rules. Good example is like, you you know, you'll, you'll be playing with your cards with your friends and you'll have a hand. That's your hand at this moment. What are all, what are all the hands you could have in this scenario? And how would you play each one of them? If you, if, you had all those hands same thing in business like sometimes you're in really sticky spots or like something isn't working the way that you expected to but what are all the ways that this problem could play it out if it goes really well what do you do next if it goes poorly what do you do next if it goes right as you expected what happens next those things are like the the types of frameworks that i that i'm talking about because it sounds very esoteric mm. so just scenario planning in, in essence sitting down and saying like all right, we're going to launch this campaign. What is the worst case? What's the best case? What's the probable case? Mm -hmm. Just laying it all out and seeing what happens. And you're kind of making predictions too. I know there's some, like there's a prediction thing you can do. I can't remember the system, but you essentially assign probabilities to each outcome and then you calibrate after the fact. And Mm -hmm. you, there's a score you can give yourself. I can't remember what this, this score is called. Um, But you go back and you essentially like, see the weight that you assign that probability, if it happened, the frequency that you were right. And you can yep. look back and say like, all right, I have this level of accuracy predicting future scenarios or something like that. Yep. Yeah. That's, that, I think, I think that's really, that's really cool because like doing, making a business comparison might be like, okay, you've got a, you've got a problem that you need to solve this week. And um, irrespective of what actually happens, it's really important to think to yourself how you could approach the problem. Like what are the wide degree of ways that you could solve the problem? Cause I I think to me, that's like, that's putting in the work to, to make good decisions versus just saying, what do I think I should do here? Okay. And doing it. I I think there's a, there's a, there's a mentality. I think I see that in when you talk about the barbell strategy all the time, like there are the, the, I think some people just naturally go to the low risk, low upside decisions Mm -hmm. But what this framework I'm talking about is going is saying, what are the crazy high, low probability, high bets that we could make? Do they exist at all? And like, are, am I thinking too shallow on this problem? Um, that's when it gets really exciting when you start thinking about things like that. Do you actually sit down and calculate? So the, in those scenarios, you're kind of, ex- you're calculating a little bit of expected value. Um, I guess a little bit of um, like a variance score too, in a way with the highly variable kind of experimental ideas. Mm -hmm. Do you sit down and calculate that score for a given blog post or is it on a per channel basis? Or I guess like, how do you apply that on a really granular level to content to SEO? Do you say, all right, this keyword, we're going to put it in this, this um, non-expert, this is going to be the predictable bucket because it's got a thousand search volume, the difficulty is low enough. We'll probably rank for it. And if we don't, we just waste 500 bucks writing the post. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's exactly what we're talking about. Like that framework of like hypothesis, expected outcome, like the, the it's just the AB testing or like, you know, framework, but it's essentially the same exact thing. Um, but if you play those scenarios out a million times over, you're going to end up ahead if you have a really good framework for how to, how to make those plus expected value bets. Um, now, like if you if you if you take the the content example, let's let's go through like a an SEO project, right? You've got a keyword, you've got like you said a thousand search per month, and it's this low difficulty. Um, 
I would expect that over a certain amount of time, we're going to get this much traffic. It's going to be worth this much money in money. I'm going to have to spend this much money to get to, to get to that, to that point, whether it's from outreach, creative copy, et cetera. And I think I can get cash flow positive in six months. Now, the fact that you went through that and broke all that down and created a process around it makes you a better person, a better, a better thinker and a better marketer. Um, now, if you miss, you have to loop back around. Why did I miss? What was the reason why did I not factor for something? That is a muscle that is applicable in poker, in business, in content, anything you want to do. Um, so I, I, that I love the, the the idea of thinking how could this play out, and how do I like how do I model out what that opportunity is? Now we're busy every day; like we might not have the ability to do this for every decision, but for big decisions, I think it's really important to go through those those frameworks. You mentioned a quick sentence you said was, uh, you know, if you do this a million times over the long run, your value will be positive. Um, that leads me to this uh, idea of resulting. <laughs> is, is, the, uh, is there a difference between a bad idea and a bad outcome? Oh, man, that's the question. That is the question of the day. So I always think all the time, there's so many entrepreneurs we've never heard of that took a big shot and failed. They might've had the right test criteria, the right sample, everything. And it just went poorly. So the question is, are they winners or losers in that scenario? Even if they, they had the right strategy. And I think only they, they can answer that. Like there, there are some people who are, who are super comfortable risking everything that they have and failing. And there are some people that it's a disaster for them. Uh, that's such a tough question. I mean, like, I, I try to frame my mind that I'm just trying to make good decisions and let the chips fall where they may, like not to make the, <laughs> the analogy, but, but to me, the process is more important than the outcome. Now we're in the real world. Like there are outcomes that we have to hit. There are certain goals that we have to do um, to be successful. So yes, there is, there's obviously like a ton of, um, a ton of like impact to, to the things you do every day. But I, I think it comes down to like intrinsic versus in, extrinsic motivation, right? Um, if you're okay with failure, you have to be okay with rewarding yourself when things go well too. Um, so I don't know, that, that's, a, that's a tough one to answer because I think that's, into, it's, that's dependent on the person. Um, like I'm not, I'm not one of those people who like needs to be the right person all the time. I'm totally comfortable being wrong and owning up to it. Um, if you're not one of those people, then do the lowest thing, you know, mm. um, whatever, whatever makes you happy, I guess. Yeah, totally. I, my, my idea here is that if you, if you have the proper system, I don't know if like any given idea can be good or bad. Um, if the system is in place, right. If you're running a B tests and like you have a certain portfolio or you have a certain bucket for predictable ideas and a certain bucket for like batshit crazy ideas. Like you can't say a batshit crazy idea was bad just because it failed because then the sixth one might pay for the previous five losses. Right. So I think that's where I was going in terms of like the idea versus outcome. At least I, I don't know if it's possible. That's why I'm trying to ask is like, I want to believe there's a world where we can iron out survivorship bias just by looking at the long term and building a system that over the long run, over repeat iterations, Yep. Any given failure doesn't necessarily mean that over the long game, 
you're a failure, right? Like, so your, your inputs, your process, um, the workflow is all right. It's the right decisions, but maybe like you suffer a loss one out of five attempts, um, but the other four make, make up for it or whatever. But I think, I wonder, I don't know, is it about system development or like, yeah. It could be that just some people just don't try again after they fail because the, the, the failure is so painful to them, whether it's like the social impact or like the financial impact that they don't try again. I think there's, there's probably a lot of that, you know, um, you do something that doesn't work and it's, it's, you know, you might be embarrassed by it or, or maybe you don't get the outcome you, you were desiring. So you don't try again. Um, but I, I think that's super, I mean, like, <sighs> The, the ideal world is one where we're always making the best decision irrespective of the outcome. Then the, the real world is the outcome is, is the only thing that matters. Mm. So I think it goes back down to like what motivates you as a person. Um, it seems like also you want to make sure that you stay in the game. That's one criteria for a good decision is if the risk is, is high enough that it takes you off the table in the poker sense or in the business context. If you spend all of sure. your money on one initiative and it fails, like that's a bad decision because then you don't have a chance for a repeat iteration. So mm-hmm. having some, that, that's what you were talking about with like assessing risk, right. And uncertainty yeah. and like figuring out what the actual downside is because yeah. if you spend all of your money on like one given AB test or content marketing campaign or whatever it is, and you lose it all, well, I mean, you're yeah. fucked. Any learning you had from that doesn't, you can't even yeah. apply because you're not at the table anymore. So that may be yeah, one criteria a test that takes down the site and the business runs out of money. That's a pretty bad outcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like running a test that like has a, you know, like impacts the number a little bit and it's, it. there's psychology and then there's quantitative. That's, that's the thing I'm trying to like tap into is like, there, there are just general rules of math where you can only risk so much because if you risk too much, you will lose. I mean, we saw this with the financial crisis, like way over levered, the system just, just crashes. Same thing with, with business, right? You can make too many high vol- volatile bets and you're just putting yourself in a bad spot. The opposite is true. You can make low risk, low pro- you know, high probability bets your whole life and never get anywhere. Or maybe you're just comfortable there because you haven't put yourself in a spot to take a risk. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think some people are very happy being there. And there are some people who want to be in those highly, you know, high risk situations. Look at the entrepreneurs and all the guys who are putting their, their, you know, their reputation on the line to, to start a company. That, those are high, high, high risk situations. Um, but I, I think it really does come down to like, what makes you happy? Some people are really happy with, with comfort and kind of like day to day. Some people need a little bit more of a, of a, of a kick in their butt. They need a little bit more risk to, to make them fired up about something. Um, that's where like the psychology of like who you are and the way you like to manage your day comes in. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Um, hmm. I hate to say this, but you know, just getting older, like you, you tend to take less risks, right? Like I just turned 36. Like I'm definitely not in my twenties anymore. And like, I'm not going to like go like, you know, go to Vegas and play like the world series and like all this stuff. Like I've got other commitments and stuff like that. So that my, my life is, is definitely different now. Um, but I, I think everybody needs that. Like, I think that I definitely, I, I think I definitely sort of cater towards like the more, the more careful side now, because I have things that in my life that are in my life that I want to, I want to make sure that are, are there every single day. Um, and 
like I want to, I want to go work in like Fiji for a summer. Like those are the things that like, are they high risk theoretic, like just money, I guess. But like the risk is I'm away from my family and all the other things that like are going on in my life. And so I, I think the, those types of things too. And I'm like, man, am I just getting soft now? I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to take those, those high risk situations anymore, but the, the puzzles just gotten a little bit more complicated. And I think that happens, you know, over life. Um, I felt the exact same thing. And I'm glad you were, you used the word getting soft because I've said the same <laughs> thing to my friend, uh, my buddy, David Kemmerer here in town. We talked about that with, with uh, career and uh, entrepreneurial risks and that yeah. earlier in my career, I feel like I was, I don't even know if I thought about decisions. I just kind of jumped in. And now I, I do feel a lot more contemplative, slow moving, um, and typically safe. And sometimes I wonder if, if that's the right path. If I should open up like a bucket in the bar, I mean, the barbell strategy of my life, <laughs> should I have a 10% basket where I have some, you know, big swings and I don't, it's, that's a, a tough one because going back to the poker metaphor, um, and what would you call it? The, um, uh, chip management or as you grow yeah, incremental ICM it's called yeah ICM yeah so you start out small and and you got to take those big swings career-wise like I joined right. a pre-seed startup in Austin thousands of miles yep. from where I grew up and I'm not going to do the same thing now I'm not going to drive up to Seattle to join you know three right. random people and join a startup and it, because there's more to protect now right so there is right. some semblance of just that's the natural progression progression of life but mm-hmm. I don't know. I always wonder like, you know, what's, what's missing, what's behind that curtain on that little more experimental side of things. For sure. Yeah. This, this reminds me of the conversations we've had like offline about, about um, like what we want to do with our lives and stuff like that. And I think over time, like your, your brain, you're just more exposed to like different things that could happen um, because you have more things that are, that are complicating your decisions. And I, th- I think like not to be like too out there, but um, like, there's, there's something to be said for people who keep their lives relatively simple around the things that they, they get the most value out of. And they, they are okay to saying no to things that maybe don't add a ton of value and complicate their, their decision-making. I think a lot about that too. I'm like, you know, you, your, your life is a finite amount of time. You have a decision about who you spend your time with, who you work with, like where you spend your money, things like that. And uh, over time, your brain does start to think, oh my goodness, like what if I lose all these things? But ultimately the risk today is actually no different from it was day, day one of my mm-hmm. life. You know, it's just like y- your, uh, your mind thinks to yourself, what happens if I lose this? But um, going back to that, like barbell strategy, it's like, what is the big bet I could go make? If you can't answer that, that's, that's a tough one because you, you want to have dreams and aspirations and things you could potentially do in the, in your future. Um, I know we've talked about that like privately, but it's just, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about it that way. Yeah. Well, one way is doing side projects. We, that's why we did the agency and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily like a big risk taking thing, but it is a bucket that could have high upside if we do it well. So I do get kicks out of that. And I've seen, I mean, you seem naturally entrepreneurial. Um, have you done, or do you plan on doing, you know, any side projects or any like future goals in terms of like building your own thing? Um, I used to do a lot of that stuff and I, I've, I've sort of backed off from it. Cause I, I think my, like my aspirations in life have changed from like when I, when I was, when I first got into marketing and like was all excited about, you know, I wanted to build like an e-com business and do all this stuff. And I, I think I, over time, my, I've been trying consciously to be more balanced about things and being more balanced, I think has had an impact on that, like risk 
assessment because um, while living a more balanced life and, and having, you know, better relationships around you and, and, and doing more like things, it does spread your bets out a little bit. So um, it makes it tougher for you to take those risks. But I don't know. I, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty happy with just like reading a lot, being, you know, working really hard, spending more time with my family and uh, trying to be like a, a well-rounded person versus the person who like work is the only thing I do. And, you know, success is the only thing I do. And I, I, that might've answered the question we were, we were talking about before about this idea of like, whether or not I'm comfortable with risk. I think I'm comfortable with risk, but there are some things I'm not willing to risk because I think it leads to a better quality of, of life. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's like the total opposite end of the spectrum with like somebody like Elon Musk taking all the money he made from one company, putting it all into the next one, like potentially going broke, but also now being like the richest guy in the world. What a legend, you know? <laughs> and it's not for everybody. It's not for me, but uh, I respect the people who do have that level of skin in the game. I think it's, uh, that's a very unique way to live. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, imagine that's a great example. Like the, the Elon example, that guy could have totally mailed it in, had zero risk his whole life, plenty of money, but took the insane risk. But now you have to consider that for you to go work for somebody like that, you have to have a relatively high tolerance for risk as well, because mm-hmm. ultimately your, your day to day is on the line with, with them. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's the type of risk I think I'd be willing to take in the future is like a project that has relatively low expectation. Like I don't know a specific example right now, but something that could be a passion project that could lead to success in the future, but doesn't require the risk that, some other things would do like quitting your job and starting your own business. You know what I mean? That's yeah, stuff. totally. So kind of related, do you fall down like rabbit holes and get obsessed with things easily? It seemed like poker was something like that. I'm sure yeah. music was back in the day. Do you find yeah. yourself like, I don't know, just subconsciously getting attracted to like a new interest and just like fucking reading about it and watching YouTube 100%. videos and like hundred percent. Yep. 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 Yeah. I, like I, uh, what's something that I'm like that with now? Um, well, it's been the pandemic, so I haven't been doing, doing too much, but like, I, I definitely get, get like that. Like I had, um, what was it? I got into, uh, sailing recently. Mm. I started taking lessons. And so just being me, some people like they go to, they go sailing to have a good time. And they're like, wow, that was great. I went sailing on a vacation probably like four years ago. And I just was obsessed. I go on YouTube. I'm starting to learn how to sail. Like I, I like, I want to learn like all the, the vocabulary of like how to sail and like, what are the boats done? And then I was like, oh my goodness, like, could I start a marketing like business around sailing? And that's just, I just go all in <laughs> like you mentioned. Um, and who knows, maybe there'll be something that I'll, that I'll do like music where I'll, I'll, I'll get into it. And I'll realize it's not exactly the, the, the thing that I want, but um yeah, I'm sure you're the same way. I can tell. So. I'm definitely the same. And sailing yep. was even something I tried to stumble into, but the sailing sucks here in Austin. The mm. wind is really weird. We have lakes, but it's just, I can never get out because it's either dead or like completely right. changing directions and wild. But right. if I were in Boston, if I were in New England, I think that would probably be the next rabbit hole that I'd fall down. I think my next one is probably, it might be jujitsu. I went to uh, a class. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I, I get it. Like, it's something that uh, was super, it always starts like this. It starts as something I'm intrigued by. It looks cool. I know people who do it. They speak highly of it. 
And then the first time I do it, it's overwhelming almost. Like there's a bunch of new jargon. It's a very technical thing. It's mm-hmm. something that I can see myself spending hours and hours pouring into. Like it's not simple on the surface, but I always mm-hmm. have to kind of get it. Like I have to like at least click, it has to click once in that first session or two. Right. Um, and I think jujitsu did that because like uh, I had a, a pretty good teacher, I think. And uh, I was able to like, I don't know what hold or choke it was called, but I, I figured it out and I was like, all right, yep. I know we were going slow and I know you guys were going easy <laughs> on me, but like I could see myself diving into this one. But yeah, and I, I, it might be that like, because um, with jujitsu, the, the risk of not doing it well forces you to be so present when you're doing it. Oh, that you're, 100%. you're very, like, I think about that all the time. I'm like, dude, that's if, the same if, thing if with sailing get, though. Yeah. If, if I crash my boat or like go off in the middle of the ocean, like I'm probably going to die. So that <laughs> there's the downside, like jujitsu, you could get seriously hurt if somebody doesn't, if you don't pay attention. So like for somebody like maybe like you're probably the same way I am. My brain's always going all the time. So when I find something that I can go a hundred percent into it, I think there's, I, this is meditation taught me a lot is like, there's something to being super present on, on something that you're passionate about when you're a hundred percent all in on it. And I'm sure you're like, you're taking these jujitsu uh, lessons and you haven't thought about like work or anything else going on in your life. So you've been able to really sit and focus on that. Mm-hmm. Do you get uh, on the flip side, do you get bored easily? Uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a, it's something that I think is a, a, a terrible quality because, um, like, as I've been more thinking about that, it's like, you should be happy with less, you know what I mean? And, uh, like the, that's a lot of, you know, I don't know if you know who Sam Harris is, but I use his uh-huh. meditation. I use the same one. Medit- yeah. Yep. Waking up. Yeah. By the way, if anybody's listening, waking up is amazing. Um, it's like psychedelic almost. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, we, we have similar lives, Alex. I feel like <laughs> so it's, but uh, like a lot of, a lot of his lectures about, um, about how to be present, about how to not always be looking at what's coming next is something I struggle deeply with. And um, it's like, it manifests in like poor sleep quality with not being present and not like thinking deeply about this current moment, I'm always thinking about what's going next. So that's something I'm trying to really tackle. And I think going back to that, like, what do you want to do with your, with your life thing? That's something I want to be really intentional about. And so um, part of that comes with accepting that you can't do everything and you have to say no to stuff. Like I, I want to go do all these other passion projects, but like, Hey Bill, how about you stop doing that for a second and go spend time with your family or call them and, and do stuff like that? Like those are the balancing type of things that I mean, that, that I think I'm, is, has been a struggle for me, but I'm, I'm really trying to take this serious now. So are you trying to become more comfortable and accepting of bored, boring activities and boredom in general, or I guess what's your, what's your striving in that direction? This is yeah. something I deal with too. I, I am bored quite easily. And when I'm bored, I'm stressed and, I don't know. It's almost like I'm less stressed when I'm stretched out, when I'm like challenged intellectually or physically. And like, if right. I'm not like that, I don't know. I just get this restlessness. Yeah. Yeah. I've, th- I've, I've thought a lot about it and there there's, there's like two sides of it, right? Like it's, when you're motivated to do things and, and you're fired up and you want to go do stuff all the time, that the root of that is why it allows you to be successful in, in certain parts of life. But the, the, the alternative is that you're not able to slow things down and, and really appreciate things. And I think I got really trapped in this mindset um, like three or four years ago when I moved down to Charlotte and was like, I'm going to go be successful. I moved away from my family. I had so polared to one side of the spectrum, but had kind of 
completely forgot about the other side of the spectrum. And I realized that like, like I'm always like that where I find something I go all in and then I forget about everything else. I'm trying to be much more balanced in the boredom thing is like, you don't always have to be doing something next because presence of mind, just being as you are, instead of always trying to do something else actually helps you refocus on what you want to do. You know what I mean? Like I, I that's I, maybe I'm not explaining that well, but like, um, you don't always have to be active and, and busy and doing something. You can just spend time thinking or spend time talking to your family or like be a little bit more chill versus having to always do something all the time. Um, it's something I really struggle with. And I think like the mentality of always wanting more and more and more press on the gas until the tank runs out, I think is good in some aspects, but it's also, you know, it's not great in others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, these are things that I'm constantly telling myself and forgetting and trying to tell myself again, I find too, if you, there's extrinsic, uh, stress, uh, the good stress, there's extrinsic challenges and things that are extrinsically interesting. But if you can, if you can find that intrinsically, you can make anything interesting. And uh, I complain all the time about meetings. Like uh, I have way, way too many of them. And I still, I, I don't think that's probably a good thing for my like actual output in life in terms of the work and quality that I put out. But I found that if I'm in a meeting and I'm not necessarily a central role, um, if I act like an anthropologist and then I just really, really like view how people behave and like how they talk and like, you know, what's their strategy and try to get into their heads, it, it becomes way more interesting. It's like watching a movie or something. I'll make a perfect comparison. Poker. When you're not playing a hand, don't you think it's valuable to watch how other people play their hands? I, I think that's the type of presence what I what I what I've been thinking deeply about is like if you took interest in things instead of waiting for what's gonna come next, life becomes a little bit more interesting. And maybe it slows down a little bit, but like that concept of boredom, I think, is a is actually just a it's a mental block. It's like your brain has decided this is not important. So let's go focus on something else. But you can realign that attention to the things you're currently focusing on. And maybe you have a new perspective on it. And maybe this is like way too like, you know, theory based. But the example of the meetings is like, hey, we've all been there. Like who wants to be in a meeting and listen to everybody else talk? But if you slow down things a little bit and you're like, hey, what's this person saying? What perspective are they coming from? Maybe the next time you talk to that person, you'll be able to communicate with them more effectively. Um, so there's 100%. It's yeah. useful as well. Uh, we could stop here, but I'm not going to. I'm going to ask you like three or four <laughs> random questions, if that's cool. Let's go. Let's go. They're unrelated to anything we talked about. <laughs> but yep. I want to know We're going to have some actual content. <laughs> We're going to have some real content. I, I wrote them down. <laughs> All right. <laughs> These are the only ones that I wrote down here. So I've got, um, do you have any unusual hobbies that I don't know about? Oh man. Um, even things he dropped, I suppose it's a weird time during the pandemic. I don't know if this is a weird, I don't know how many other people do this, but I get like really obsessive with either a movie or an album because I, if I listen to an album that I like, I will listen to that thing a million times over and over and over again to break down every part of it. And then I will almost forget about everything else that's going on and like other music that's interesting to me. And I realized that because uh, I got called out for it. <laughs> Somebody saw that they, 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 my Spotify, that I was playing the same album over and over again. And um, that's kind of a weird habit is like, um, like overly 
obsessing about something. I know we talked about this a second ago, but um, but yeah, that's something that I that I that I do all the time that I wish I did less of. But like to me, I don't know. Maybe this is the old school mindset of like an album is a piece of artwork and it's like meant to be experienced from the beginning to the end. Now I sound like the old guy on the podcast talking about how it used to be when you used to buy records in the store, but that's fine. We're fine with it. <laughs> oh, man, I bought a, a, a vinyl. I, I bought a record player right at the start of the pandemic and that's been awesome. Like I'll just listen to the full record back to front. I have some vinyl. I will send you some you, you can have of, of stuff that I bought in Chicago at some of the record stores and stuff like that. I'll have to send you some stuff. Oh, that'd be amazing. Dinner. Uh, you get dinner with one person dead and one person alive. Who are they? Doesn't have to be related to marketing. Dream one dinner guest, alive. essentially. Dream dinner guest. Um, hmm. That's a tough question. Um, wow. I don't even know how to answer that question. Um, there's just so many different options. I mean, this is going to sound lame, but a live person is my mom. She's the coolest. I, uh, I, I can't spend enough time with my, with my family. They're, they're awesome people. Um, dead. Um, geez. That's a tough one. This is so many, so many names running through my head. Um, I would love to have dinner with Jimi Hendrix. That would be cool. I feel answer. like I feel like he was in a in a, such a absolute insane time and was at the center of like just a lot of stuff happening in the world. Um, I'm sure I could come up with a million other ones, but I've always found his story to be just like super interesting and. Um, the time of life and it's not too far away where I could relate to what he was talking about, but it would be, it would be a, it'd be a fun guess. How about yourself? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I always ask the question. <laughs> I've never asked the question. <laughs> Hendrix is an interesting one. Uh, he's an alien to me because I can listen to most other guitars and I know that with time and applied pressure, I can learn their music and I could play it. But I know that even if I can play those notes, I can't sound the like tone. he sounded. Yeah. So he's like an alien. Um, I don't know. Alive. Um, a dead, I would pick Anthony Bourdain. Uh, one of my favorites. I actually saw him live with Eric Repair right before he died. They did a wow. little tour. Yeah. That's amazing. Sure. I just think he would be the ultimate dinner guest in general, and I'm a huge fan. He yeah. was a big inspiration growing up in a small town in the Midwest to, to yep. see the world and just know that there's more out there and to connect with people in that way that he did. So I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, alive he is tough he died it was like the whole world related to it which is kind of kind of yeah wild, that was right? that was a profound one for me for sure and i'm i don't usually get shaken up over like celebrity deaths but that was a big one uh alive it might be i'm looking at my bookshelf it, it'd probably be an author um N nasim taleb would be a cool one or rory sutherland i really really liked his book and his ted talks um, yeah, it would probably be somebody like that. Cause they're very like polymath, uh, yep. the subjects would be wide ranging. They've got deep expertise and they seem like fun, boisterous, like heavy drinkers, yep. which <laughs> be, like yep. a fun dinner. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so I think that would be mine. Um, and then here's one more, um, do you, which, or I'll do two more. Uh, who do you admire professionally and why? Um, 
This might be somebody you know, actually. You know who I admire professionally is, uh, do you know Julie Hilgen? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. She used, to, she used to lead customer success over at, over at, uh, at HubSpot, and I uh, work with her at Drift. And uh, I, I admire her for multiple reasons. Number one, incredibly bright person. Number two, uh, the most personable person I think I've ever worked with. And um, like, there's something to be said for people who are, who are smart, who get the quantitative side of things. And then there's something to be said for people who just bring people together and like make everybody a team and is always like excited to be around things and always fired up. Um, Like as my career has evolved, I'm like, you can find people who have great quant skills or have great design skills or like are really good with code but it's really hard to find people who are really enthusiastic and like generally care about the people that are, that are around them every single day. Like, I feel like every great company needs to have at least one person who's like that person for them, if they're going to be a great company. Um, anyways, but she's always been somebody that I've, I've really admired just from working together and also just the way I see her treat other people around her. Cause uh, at the end of the day, like we're, we're, we're in business We're we're working really, really hard, but it's the people that, you remember 20 years later who made you feel you know great at that moment when you weren't feeling that great those are the people you need around mm, that's cool mm. what blogs podcasts and influencers do you love to follow right now oh geez um blogs is a tough one i i, I think there's just so much content out there um hmm. I like Lex. Well, let's let's start with podcasts because I've been I've been doing a lot a lot of the podcasts these days. Um, I like Lex, Lex Friedman's podcast. Huge um, fan. That's a really good one. Um, he started, yeah, a huge fan. So he, you know, speaking of jujitsu, he actually trains jujitsu at South Boston down the street from me, like oh, literally really? down the street. He, he's a yeah, black yeah, belt, yeah. isn't I, he? I don't know, but he talked about it in his podcast, and he was like, "Oh, this is the guy I train with. He lives in." South Boston. I was like, what? I was like, Oh my God, down the street. So, um, if I was a stalker, <laughs> awesome. I would, I would go, uh, I would go way up for him, but uh, he's like my spirit um, animal. He's like an AI researcher, plays the guitar, jujitsu, got his podcast. Like I'm like, that's got all the things aspirational <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, I think, geez, I don't know. Um, I don't, that's the, that's the one that I listen to the most consistently. And then, um, one that helps me sleep is a podcast called sleep with me. Uh, it's not to, you know, not in that, that way, but literally like they just tell these fragmented, like completely random stories. And every single time I'm having a tough time sleeping, that's my podcast. So you just turn it on nothing makes sense. And all of a sudden, boom, you wake up in the morning. So two things I like to do. Number one, think about AI and, and crazy future of the world. And then number two, sleep really well. So those, those are my two, <laughs> Those are my two favorites. I just subscribed uh, to the sleep with me one. That sounds awesome. Actually. Give it a whirl. Give it a whirl. <laughs> All right, cool. Books. You want to wrap up here? Books. Oh yeah. 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 Books. Uh, Sam's waking up book is the mm-hmm. book that I, I most often gift. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, the book that taught me everything about um, poker. Uh, it's Matthew Janda. It's called um, Applications of No Limit Hold'em. It's about game theory and poker. That book I've read probably four or five times. And um, 
it's it's obviously like a, a it's a poker focused book, but it's it's really about systems thinking about how to deduce problems. Um, I, I've read that book probably three or four times. That's one of one of my favorite books. Um, so those those two are my favorites. So. That's awesome. Is there anywhere online that people should follow you that you want to point them to? Sure. Yeah. BillKingTM.com is my, my website. Um, you can find me on Twitter at inboundy. It's like inbound with a Y. Um, and uh, yeah, those are the two easiest places to find me. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me, Alex. 